Hello, everyone. I'm Kevin Winder, and thanks for tuning in to another podcast of Beyond Everything Radio. And as always, I have a question for you. The modern culture has a divorce rate approaching 50%. But did you know that of all the religions, Christians have the lowest divorce rates with Protestants at 18%. In today's podcast and post, we finish our series entitled A Marriage Tune-Up with a look at our options for divorce. I'll discuss the four main options and why the Bible provides an exit and doesn't consign people to bad marriages. Join me now as we see beyond both cultural and religious positions and discover why the high view of love frees us into our marriages and sometimes out of them. Hello, everybody. Thanks so much for coming back. I'm glad to have you here. My name is Kevin Winder, and I like to serve the world as an online pastor, author, and uncoach. And I am serving as your host today on this podcast, which you have found uh, either by divine appointment or what you would call dumb luck. <laughs> Maybe a friend sent it to you. Uh, I don't know how or when you find it, but I do know that if you're here right now and you're listening to this you're here for a reason. This is not content that is just easily found, discovered, posted. I don't advertise. So, you know, if I post it somewhere and you get it linked, it's because someone cared or thought of you or however all that works. And so, folks, if you're joining today for the first time, I just want to say you're going to need to engage your minds. Um, you're going to have to think through some stuff. Today might be a little longer of a post because as I wanted to conclude this series today, I had a choice. Do I go long post or do I go long series? And usually the longer the series goes, the more the audience wanes. Uh, and I do discover, as I have in the last few uh, posts that have gone a little over the usual 30-minute mark, um, that uh, as it's engaging, you are tuning in. And you're giving me feedback. And I want to say thank you. It's been awesome to engage with you on this stuff, to discuss where you're at in your life, how this law of love is revolutionary in some ways because it's not really taught as it should be. And so here we are, uh, the final chapter today. It's podcast number 417... 18, something like that. <laughs> it's part six of our marriage tune-up series, and it's called Divorce. And so you can imagine already with a title like that, most everybody has an assumption on divorce. Like I read that quote of the data in the introduction that the Christian marriage among Protestants has a divorce rate of about 18%. It's the lowest. Next is Catholics at 19%. Mormons were about 19%. Other religions like uh, Islam and Hinduism were in the 30 to 40%. And of course, the general population is pushing 50%. And so if you have any interest at all in trying to have a loving, committed marriage, statistically speaking, you should at least pay attention to what is happening over there in the Protestant consideration. And so you're going to hear all that. It's what I have and what I've been teaching you is a biblical worldview. I've been unapologetically 
doing so, but not in the conventional way. You see, so many of us have come through religion or have left it because of its really kind of cultish, hierarchical, non-culturally relevant ways of engagement. And so it's always taught one particular way, and it's never an open discussion. It's always the talking head who has the final say, and your questions are generally not welcome. Uh, You'll just get mansplained or some other form of condescending conversation, perhaps. It's not everywhere. I get it. But for the most part, this isn't a discussion. A lot of religious frameworks have zero options for divorce. And what that means is that that doesn't necessarily mean that there's something healthy. And we're going to get into that. Okay. But why, why should you listen to this podcast? Right? Why should you listen to me? I mean, in my research, I came across a guy who says he's a love expert. And I just called BS. Right? He's just trying to call himself some kind of expert because he's talking about marriage a lot. But that doesn't make you a marriage expert. You could be a marriage and family therapist and all you do is talk to people and counsel people. That doesn't make you an expert. What I would like to know among everybody talking about marriage is what is your marriage really like? You see, if you don't have a healthy, happy, vibrant marriage, you don't have the right to talk in my book. And so this series has explored the high view of marriage, the high view of love and sex by comparing it to the low view that's held by our modern world. And for some... It probably seems as though I'm placing some unobtainable, unrealistic standard upon relationships or that I'm just promoting some pie-in-the-sky dreamland. And I can assure you, that is not the case. I stand before you honestly, sharing principles that I have personally applied in my life, that I've watched my wife personally apply in our life. And the result is that our family has been very peaceful. It's enjoyable. We love each other. Like when I tell people that I have two adult children and I never had one single day where the teenager gave me an attitude or backtalk or drama or argument or fought with us, people think I'm full of crap. Like, I don't fight with my wife. We don't get in big yelling, screaming matches. We don't argue. We don't bicker. We don't cut each other down. We don't do any of that. We have almost zero drama. The drama that creeps into our house usually comes from the outside in. It's usually not within our corpus of our core family. We all get along. We go about our days with intention and hope and peace we support each other. We love one, in, which, one another. We, we gather together every day and relate rather than react to each other. And to us, this just feels normal. This is what the family should be like. This is what we, we do. But when you put that scenario against the world, we are the abnormal ones. This healthy, integrated, loving, committed family that doesn't have napalm, that doesn't cut each other down, that isn't 
sarcastic and hurtful or mean or belligerent or any of that. No attitude. It's, it's good. That's abnormal in the world standard. But I share that with you, not as, hey, look at me. I share it because I wouldn't offer you advice in marriage if it weren't so. I have unconventional ideas, but they have produced unconventional results. So maybe it's worth considering. And since normal in our world is bad, or said another way, the normal live in an unloving context of untransformed pain. And the high view of love, marriage, and sex, it will always transform our pain into a loving act of the will. Love is not an emotion. It's an act of the will. And the problem isn't that pain. The problem is that pain is unpleasant. Duh. <laughs> right? But it's unpleasant by design. And this is where these deeper theological, vertical, horizontal dimensions start to just infuse these philosophies. These, it, out of these are why the divorce rates are lower with people who uphold these perspectives. Pain is a check engine light to reveal what is broken in your life. See, our natural pattern is to move away from pain, to escape it, try and mask it. Let's bury the pain. Let's numb our pain. Let's resist it, at least. But pain is a very wise teacher if we are willing to learn and receive its correction. But most people don't realize that the pain you are experiencing is actually the pain of your resistance. You see, to resist pain is pain. It's the resistance that is the most painful part. See, the experience I am sharing with you about my family, about my life, about all these philosophical perspectives that are derived from the biblical revelation of big, huge, overcoming, powerful love it reveals that my family is not unlike yours. We're not an anomaly. We are not just lucky. We didn't just have good-tempered children. Everything is engineered out of these philosophies. And it's not that we haven't had pain in our family. We have. But we have learned to be taught by pain and to transform our pain rather than transmit it. Those are the only options we've got. And so if you're in a family that's just transmitting pain all the time, then it's just a perpetual cycle of suck. It's death by paper cuts. And you're trying to find that deeper thing that holds you all together and you can hardly ever find it. It hardly feels worth it. But if you can transform your pain in love, which is the design of a marriage, then something amazing happens. So I invite you to just really sit through here. And you're probably wondering after all of this talk on the first five episodes where I'm waxing on about the power of love to transform and do all this work, why on the final one when I'm talking about divorce, am I bringing it up again? It's because I don't want you to forget 
I want you to bookmark this day, bookmark this podcast, come back to it later. Why? Because the path of transforming pain is consummation by love. Do you know what that means? It means being totally consumed by love, meaning you don't exist anymore. Remember, marriage is that place where it's the end of your individuality. It's the end of your independence, and it's the arrival of this bigger, wider thing, the codependence, the co-interdependence of the family unit. But here's the thing. Being consumed by love isn't like a 10-year journey down therapy lane. You don't need to reveal all your secrets. You don't have to go and and unwind your past and find diagnoses and treatments and therapies and unwind one thing for a week and a year and in another decade. And then one day it gets better. This is actually something that can happen today. It's closer than you think. But, you know, it may not happen. So what I want to do is I want to explain to you how consummation by love actually works and why it's the design of the universe. And then I want to give you some reasons why it might be time to call it quits, right? There might be a, a place in here where divorce is the thing to do, okay? Now, I like this philosopher, Alan Watts, and uh, he helped me kind of uh, just listening to a number of his things. It's, I've kind of constructed this next bit for you from pieces of what he's said in the past. Now, I want you to think about a food chain. Right? This is going to help you understand what consummation by love really means. Okay, Consummation by love is, a, it is an experience. Okay, A worm is consumed by an insect. Like the insect eats the worm. But it's not so much. We like to look at that as the end of the worm. And in one sense, that's true. But on a closer examination... The worm is actually transformed into the insect. Like it becomes the insect as it's consumed. The insect is then consumed and transformed into a bird. And the bird into a larger animal and so on. And the grass of the field is transformed in the food chain into you and I. And through this pattern of decline and death, there is renewal on the other side of it. And this pattern is visible in every single thing in life, the waveform. And only life can sustain life. Like, you can't live. The fact that you're living means that you can only survive by taking life. A plant is alive and you have to eat the plant. To survive. An animal is alive and it has to die so that you can live. There's no way to survive on dead things. It's a requirement that we are consumed one by another. All that lives is transformed into all that lives. Our death is transformation into a higher life. Like you kind of have to see that. Don't just put your death on a pedestal. Now, why am I talking about all this? Because this is what is known as the Christoform pattern of all of life. Now, you're totally free to reject this notion. Maybe you think I'm gobbledygook guy or whatever. You know, that's fine. 
but you're not free to avoid the pattern. There's no getting out of the pattern. We all go from order to disorder to reorder. Like if you want to add reorder to your life, you have to go through disorder. We start in form. We go through deformation. And then we get to reform. The Bible frames it. You go from a garden into a curse and then later into a city. This is marginalization, crucifixion, and resurrection. You see, theology is life experienced. It's not just some platitude of big, thick books and old, talking, blue-haired guys. Get that? Theology is life experienced. And now the Christoform pattern is something in which it makes sense. I get it. There's a dying that takes place in order to find renewal on the other side. Okay, so if we want a great marriage, we have to endeavor to follow in the footsteps of Christ. That is, means willingly participate into this Christoform pattern. And this is one of the reasons why I like to define myself as a Christ follower. One, because religious people want to get into your tribal denominational name or a religion name or whatever. And I don't think that's necessary. And I also don't think that Christianity should have ever become a world religion. And I can prove it and have talked about that many times. So when people ask me, well, what are you? Are you a Christian? Are you this or that? I'm a Christ follower. And to some degree, so are you. There's no one in the world who escapes this pattern. And even if you don't want to call it the Christoform pattern, you're in it. You're following. And so the problem is that for most of us, when our relationships begin this deformation process, they go into the decline phase, we just jettison them for something newer or something distraction. You know, something that we can, you know, forget about our pain, right? Yeah, this is... The problem is that person. And like I've shown you, the problem isn't that person. The problem that that person is having is you being unwilling to love. Now, like I've said all along, it requires two people, though. If you have one person committed to the process of dying to oneself, then the marriage doesn't work. It's off balance, right? This is impossible to experience the full restoration if there's only one person in the marriage. So when that happens, when do we call it quits? When can we know when it's time for the divorce? What options are actually available to us? Okay, so now we kind of get this figured out. We've got this Christoform pattern we're in. We recognize that not only us, but every relationship we'll ever be in is going to go through this phase of decline, death, and renewal. And if we want to avoid pain, we're never going to go through the process. We're going to stay out of it, and we're going to just transmit our pain instead of be transform our pain. The renewal is when the pain is transformed. Marriage is designed to allow us to do this. It's a perfect, beautiful tool to self-reflect, become bigger, greater, and stronger, healthier. Now, I've talked about in the previous episodes this sclerocardia, this uncircumcised heart, which is the reason Moses allowed for divorce, right? Matthew 19.8. And in fact, many Christians quote this passage as Jesus' only justification for divorce. And maybe that's you. Maybe you grew up in a very religious framework that said, well, you cannot have a divorce 
And the only time it's allowed really is if your spouse cheats on you. And that's really how this is interpreted. Only in the case of adultery is a person allowed to divorce. I'm going to challenge that assumption. So put on your floaties while we go to the deep end here. But that's just a surface level interpretation. Yeah, I mean, it says that and I'm not saying it doesn't. But what I'm saying is there's so much more here that that is just like the junior high version of interpreting it. We know that there's a deeper sin of adultery that goes beyond the betrayal in the sex act. It's the betrayal within the heart. And at that level, there is no marriage relationship that is outside the scope of this betrayal. Did you hear me? Every husband, every wife, no matter how holy or righteous or good you think you are or how good you think they are, every one of us has and will continue to betray their beloved within their heart. That sounds kind of cynical, Kev. It's true. You see, we are all idolaters and we are all adult, adulterers at heart. You can't escape the human propensity for sin. It is our nature, right? This is the human depravity story. But folks, I am not going to camp out in this tea of tulip, total depravity, right? Because it, it doesn't end there, right? And I'm going to get to that. But not everyone will betray the marriage in their actions, right? In their heart, we will all betray our marriages. But some, some of those betrayals in the heart level never rise to an action. And there's a goodness to that. It's a graced experience when that happens. This is why the Bible is constantly using marriage as the metaphor for, of the love relationship between God and humanity, groom and bride. And I know this vertical horizontal dimension may not sit well at first, but until we let this sink in, we cannot truly begin this healing journey, this transformative journey of being consumed by love. Romans 3.22 puts it this way. It says there is no distinction. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified. This is the all. All are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So here it is. Here's that vertical dimension. Now, you don't, again, you don't have to subscribe to this, but you can't get away from its reality. Like you can say, I don't believe that I've sinned. That's fine. <laughs> it's laughable. But go ahead. Go ahead. Convince yourself. But the repercussions of that belief are long lasting. Get over yourself. Join the pool of sinners. Okay. But here's the thing. A high view of love, a high view of marriage and sex begins with a very low view of ourselves. But it does not stay there. This is where John Calvin needs to get over himself, right? You don't stay with total depravity. The potential within our humanity and with the divine dwelling within us is absolutely unspeakable in its dynamism and potential. So, yes, on one level, we have a nature that tethers us 
to the lowest possible denominator. But we are this treasure being carried around in a jar of clay, as Paul says. So there's so much good and upsize to this dialectic experience known as humanity. That's, it's really important to get your hum, humanity right. Your anthropology, if it's jacked up, your marriage is absolutely going to follow suit. This is because whatever your theology grid is, so goes the rest of your philosophy in your life. So once we see our many violations of our marriage covenant in our spending or our dishonesty or our affections that are go elsewhere or our attention that goes elsewhere or in a million different little crimes against love, then we're going to share equal footing whereby we are not surprised by the betrayal of the other. It's actually expected. You see, imagine not reacting in shock or dismay or moral superiority or pride. Imagine reacting by saying, hey, you're just like me, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. We're in this journey together. That's the high view of love. That's the high view of marriage. The love and grace we show for each other, rather than condemnation and shame, is the winch that pulls our beloved incrementally out of their pain patterns. And it's what they will use to pull you out of yours. And so listen to this, folks. Healing is proximal to the equanimity at the bottom. <laughs> and it's far from the heart who is offended. So if you're walking around offended and disturbed and ticked off at your spouse, healing is far, far away. But when you find yourself at the bottom of the cesspool and you see your spouse laying there next to you, healing is so close you can hardly stand it. This means when it comes to divorce, we do have a few options. And here they are. Option number one, do whatever you want. Okay, so if you're listening to me drone on on all this stuff and you just reject the Christoform pattern or the high view of love, then you are among the population who has the most options from which to choose. You are free to do whatever you want, and I'd expect nothing else. Focus on yourself. Do what makes you happy now. Stay on the path of pain avoidance or pain distraction and self-delusion if you want. You see, once you become chronically single or lonely, deeply, deeply lonely, because you remain unknown to yourself and thus unknowable to anyone else, the pain of your living hell will catch up with you. But you're totally free to go and do that. Just bookmark this so that when that happens, when your living hell catches up with you, I want you to come back to the law of love and begin your journey with whatever time you have left. Okay? So for those of you who dismiss this, you're done. Check out. Podcast over. Do whatever you want. But there's a couple more for those who aren't in that boat. Now, option two is... Do nothing because divorce is not an option. And this is a group that really struggles. Your, your pain is harder than perhaps some of the others. If you're in the not an option arena, then by a mere act of the will, you are committing to either one of two scenarios. 
By refusing to divorce, you're either committing to a life of ongoing transformation and renewal, which, God bless you, that is highly commendable. And I, I hope that that is the lion's share of our listeners. But there's another option there if you're committing to each other with no chance of divorce. That is to live in a living divorce, which will feel like a prison because it is. And if that is you, if your marriage sucks, and trust me, I've been around pastors who have this standard of no divorce whatsoever, and they put a position paper on their website, and you know all the deacons and elders and married people all have to live. And like I've seen their marriages, and they're terrible. But they consign everybody in the church to a terrible marriage too because nobody's getting out of this hellhole alive. <laughs> But can I just say, if that's you, if your marriage sucks, but you're committed to marriage nonetheless, staying married doesn't necessarily please God or honor your vows. Staying while rejecting love's restoring power actually means you're adopting a morally superior posture, which is essentially a form of pride and judgment on others. I just want you to know, Scripture speaks to you. 1 Peter 5.5 5 says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. My suggestion is get over yourself. If you're staying married no matter what, then get all in and see it through. Why deceive yourself? Why suffer into a living hell? That's not what the Bible wants for you. And believing it does is disorder. Now, the third option I call limited options. And so I'm going to talk about a couple of the options that are available to you who subscribe to a Christian or biblical worldview. And you're trying to understand, do I stay in this marriage or not? Is it healthy? Is it not? And I got to tell you, psychology has conflated a lot of the issues. We've given our authority to psychologists who want to make decisions about whether this is a healthy relationship or not. And they want to label spouses and everybody else. Well, she's a histrionic and he's a narcissist and she's a this and he's a that. Listen, forget your diagnoses. It doesn't mean anything. Now, if you subscribe to uh, the fact that some divorces are allowed, then you might just be waiting around for your spouse to actually cheat on you. Or like many women have done, conflate pornography with cheating and then use that as justification. Use your own insecurities against your husband and go to the pastor and say, because he did that thing and so bad, I'm out of here. But really, you're just leveraging and manipulating the situation to kind of leave. And there's something in here for you that's probably you need to listen to. 1 Corinthians 7, 10 through 11 says, To the married I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. This is Paul speaking. The wife should not separate from her husband. But if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. Now, I lay this out here because Paul's teaching to the churches about marriage and about divorce is part of the bulwark of what most people are trying to live their life based upon when they say they uphold a biblical view of marriage. And I share this verse for those with good intentions who seek to uphold a biblical framework for marriage, and Paul certainly provides one. Paul understands the law of love. And he's seeking to help guide his congregation in avoiding the deeper sins within the heart. But this example curtails either spouse from just free 
freely leaving the divorce and then remarrying. Like you can't just walk out and then just do whatever you want. He's advocates towards staying married because he knows it is the framework for healing. But listen to me, Paul himself still allows for divorce. So just a few verses later, Paul says, If the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. In other words, if you're living in strife, God has called you to peace. This is, you're not to be enslaved to that. He is not trapping you in a crappy, bad marriage. See, the unbeliever is not just a person from another religion. It's not just a Christian who turned away from God or is backsliding or whatever it is. And I know there's a ton of manipulation that goes on in the church to define that. The unbeliever, the hapistos, is the one of no faith. In other words, this is a person for whom the high view of marriage, this high view of love or sex, is not something they actually believe in. They actually don't even want it. They're not striving for it. They don't subscribe to a self-dying love. They don't believe that this is the pattern that we're to follow. This is a person from whom there is no understanding nor commitment to seeing the relationship from within both the vertical and the horizontal dimension. So in other words, if a person doesn't kind of believe in what I'm saying and offering here, uh, Paul is basically saying, look, God is not consigning you to a low-functioning marriage. He's called you to peace. Let that sink in. It's like, if it's not going to be an A game, and it's going to be a, a misery of strife and erosion of your life, you can go. Let that sink in. Now, this means that God gets it. Like God understands. And so much of the, so let me get this point here. Like God gets this divorce thing so much and I'm about to blow your, your wine skins up. So put on your you know, little braces here, just brace for impact, put up your tray table. So much does God understand divorce that Revelations chapter five describes Jesus as opening the certificate of divorce in this cosmic courtroom setting. Yeah, did you know that? <laughs> the Biblion, the scroll, is a certificate of divorce in chapter 5 in Revelations. And so when you see the unfolding of this, what are you seeing? You're seeing the bridegroom issue a divorce. <laughs> okay, I'll let that one. You can write me later. If your spouse, though, will not begin the shared responsibility of dying to him or herself, then he or she is not in the marriage. They have essentially already left. He or she will not respond to your desire to be healed or go deeper together. If they reject the invitation to work through the pain, you are free to let them go. They may remain in their place of isolation if they choose 
you are not required to stay there, but you have the option to stay if you want. That's Christian liberty. You're not required to stay. You have the freedom to leave, but you can stay if you choose. And nothing has to happen today except just give your life away in love. And if tomorrow you feel otherwise, so be it. You don't have to make an immediate decision today. You don't need to call your girlfriends and figure this out by the time you get to the bottom of your third glass of wine. You see, if you stay, make sure you're committing to a self-emptying lifestyle inspired by the Christoform pattern and self-giving love of God. The vertical dimension shows us the way. Just keep laying it down in sacrificial love every day. And I know I've talked to some of you and you're doing it. Some of you have been doing this for years and years for your spouses. God bless you. You're an inspiring to me and others. But it's not required. On the day that you've had enough, God says, it's okay. Paul says this action actually sanctifies. It brings about dedication to the other person. Again, right from 1 Corinthians 7, the unbelieving husband is made holy by his wife. The unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. What pastor is teaching you that? None, I assure you. None of them are telling you that the marriage is so consecrated that it makes the unbeliever holy. If you leave, you're free to do so without condemnation. However, I got to say this, you are not free to begin another relationship whereby the law of love is not upheld. In other words, if you leave because you are trying to uphold the law of love, you can't leave and then get into another relationship where you're not upholding the law of love. If you default into the same low-level behavior, then you are essentially an adulterer. And you violate not only your true self, but that of the other as you resist being transformed by love. There is tremendous infidelity by not learning from a failed marriage. So if you leave, you're free to do so, but only unto the law of love. You, you forsake that and you wreck your future. Can I say it any better? I don't know. I'm going to give you the fourth option and then we're going to close. Your fourth option is this. This is that of settling or negotiating, right? Maybe you don't want a divorce. Maybe, you know, you have a financial stake in staying married. Maybe you stand a chance to inherit something. Maybe for the sake of the kids, you, you need to stay together. Um, there's a lot of reasons why a married couple can and should remain together. And they're not bad. It's not deficient or broken or faulty. It's, well, it is deficient. It's not living up to the high view of love which I'm proposing. And if you settle, this is essentially the quagmire of many marriages when neither the spouse wants to live wholeheartedly to the law of love. But both are basically resolved to stay with one another. And so what this looks like is like a negotiated friendship, uh, maybe with a few benefits on the side. It's a roommate situation. Sometimes it's literally a contract to just live together until you can finish raising the kids or whatever. 
Sometimes this is an experience of just doldrum and fight and strife and pain, followed by punctuated moments of affection and somewhat joy, which kind of offsets some of the pain. It's a roller coaster ride, and it's not usually fun all the time, but, but it's acceptable. Now, this is what the world calls normal. It's always an option for you. What I'm offering might be a high standard, a high bar, but there's easy stair steps to get there. It's not like you have to jump over the whole thing in one bound. And if you can't make it, you refuse to, you just quit, you tire, you lose inspiration, you give up on your spouse, whatever it is, you always have the option of just settling. But remember, when you settle and negotiate and come to terms, this is really what the world is looking at. And this is why the world has a low view of marriage. So you're actually contributing to the downward decline of the world by settling. That means our marriages have a lot more at stake than maybe we realized. And this marriage tune-up series has been an invitation to go deeper into love and to be transformed. And, and what I hope is for you to be utterly consumed by love. What you thought was infatuation was love at its beginning. Wait until you experience all-consuming love 27 years later. That's what I've been pleased to share, and I'm passing it on to you in hopes that you can find these footsteps. The pain of marriage is our resistance to pain which means we won't learn how to give ourselves away to our beloved and be transformed into something larger. Every marriage can be reestablished into a high view of love. It doesn't take a lot. As we're healed, so will we be able to begin healing the world. Does that seem unbelievable? <laughs> Perhaps. But... That's because marriage is a big deal for the entire world. And I pray that God blesses you as you contemplate these things. <laughs>